This podcast was produced in partnership with Post Industrial Media. Post Industrial produces original journalism in podcast, print, online, and video, covering communities in transition around the world. Join our community today by visiting postindustrial.com. A quick heads up to listeners, this episode includes a scene of heavy-handed police tactics and some gunfire. Okay, here we go. So there's this guy, Eric Parker, and he's running for state senate in Idaho. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the senatorial debate. It's September 2020, and we're in Haley, a mountain town just down the road from the Tony's Sun Valley Ski Resort. Bruce Willis's old bar is close by, as is a house owned by his ex, Demi Moore. We're in a conference room, and in video of the debate, you can see a handful of audience members socially distanced on metal folding chairs. The debate starts with a pretty typical question for a political discussion in a state where more than 60% of the land is public. How are the feds doing with land management? Is the federal government properly managing federal lands in Idaho? Parker sticks to conservative talking points on wildfire management. I probably subscribe to the idea that a lot of Idahoans do, which is log it, graze it, or watch it burn. There are questions about the usual hot-button issues. Is it wrong to allow the killing of babies by way of late-term, partial birth, or after-birth abortion? Idahoans have been demanding property tax relief. Is it ethical for a candidate to accept campaign donations from lobbyists, special interest groups, and corporations doing business in Idaho? So, right, what are we doing in an admittedly dull political debate in rural Idaho? Like, isn't this a podcast about militias? Well, this debate isn't interesting for the policy questions. It's interesting for the elephant in the room. See, Parker's not your typical candidate. He's cleaned up for the debate, traded his usual sweatshirt and baseball hat for a blazer and dress shirt. But he's also got a scraggly black beard and long hair that's something between a mohawk and a ponytail. It's not just his looks that are atypical, and the crowd at the debate knows it. Parker is not a famous politician. He's famous for being at the armed standoff at Clive and Bundy's ranch in Nevada. There's a photo of it you might recognize. Parker is in body armor, splayed out in the highway overpass. He's pointing a rifle through a concrete jersey barrier at federal agents. Parker was arrested and eventually pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor. Finally, 35 minutes into the debate, a questioner addresses that elephant. Mr. Parker, uh, in the past you've pled guilty to breaking the law at the 2015 showdown between the Bureau of Land Management at the Bundy's Ranch in Nevada. If elected, you'll take an oath of office to swear to follow all laws in the Constitution of the U.S. and of Idaho. Will you obey these laws and follow the Constitution even if you disagree with them? It was 2014. Okay. Um, misdemeanor obstruction. That's the charge I took. Um, I had about 15 charges, felonies. I was facing life in prison. Um, I was acquitted on 98% of those charges. The federal government has a 97% conviction rate. That federal conviction rate depends on how you crunch the numbers, but it's true that it's very high. 98% of those charges, I was found by 12 other human beings as not guilty. They held the other charges over my head 
for a third trial. They offered me a misdemeanor obstruction. Now, a misdemeanor obstruction is the same as jaywalking. If, if, if anybody's never done that before, go ahead and raise your hand. Um, I would take two more misdemeanor obstructions to stand up for the First Amendment. The point is, he'd break the law again in that situation. And there's one more big thing that makes Parker a very unusual political candidate. He is one of the most prominent militia leaders in the country. I'm Heath Drusen, and this is Extremely American. A look inside militias and other far-right groups that are trying to remake America in their absolutist image. Episode 2, 3% Nicer. Eric Parker is a lot of things. Parker's an electrician by trade, a blue-collar guy who touts those credentials. The second sentence of his campaign site bio says he is a, quote, proud working-class Idahoan. Parker drives a pickup, smokes cigarettes, and is partial to flannel and cargo pants. He's also a family man. Here he is in a selfie video he posted to Facebook with his wife and four kids. They're in front of campaign signs that say Parker for Idaho. It's Election Day 2020. Good morning, District 26. We're out here on the corner of the Highway 75. Come say hi. hi. Want to say hi? Hi. Say vote for my dad. Parker lives in Haley, one of the most liberal towns in Idaho. And I'm not grading on a curve here. It's a town where Tibetan prayer flags far outnumber yellow don't tread on me flags. On the surface, it's pretty crazy that a guy like Parker would choose to live here. When you get to know him, though, it kind of makes sense. He has a tattoo from his punk days of the four black bars that formed the logo of the band Black Flag. That's the 80s hardcore band that was fronted by Henry Rollins, a prominent liberal activist. Parker likes to talk about how he protested the Iraq and Afghanistan wars when he was a young man in Phoenix. He stood side by side with left-wing activists, condemning Republican President George W. Bush. At the time, he liked Barack Obama. I bought into hope and change. I bought into um, some of the stuff he was selling, for okay. sure. So, so you had some optimism when he got into office. Yeah, I was naive, you know. Um, I believed that there was a difference between the parties and that there was any difference that would uh, cause our country to, to turn a different direction, but I didn't see that. That's not to say he was totally different back then. I'm always armed. Even back to when I was younger and protesting, I'm always armed, you know. Um, I believe that a sidearm keeps the pepper spray out of my eyes. But yeah, there's been an evolution from Eric Parker, the young anti-war activist, to Eric Parker, the militia leader. And when I asked him for that defining moment when he changed, his answer is surprising. It wasn't his disappointment in Obama or even the armed standoff that nearly cost him his freedom. No, he tells a story about dancing. Parker saw this video on YouTube of a protest led by Marine veteran and libertarian activist Adam Kokesh. It's 2011 at the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. We're moving, man. We're in love. And the protester, Kokesh, and several others start dancing to non-existent music. In a weird quirk of the law, dancing is not allowed at the Jefferson Memorial. I know, 
It's dumb. So Kokesh and his friends were making a free speech statement by dancing, protesting the law. And it turns out, that law is enforced. The video lurches from whimsical to violent in a hurry. Cops arrive, throw some protesters to the ground, and cuff them. Stop resisting! Stop resisting! This is America! The protester being accused of resisting seems pretty immobile. The cops pull forcefully at the arms of another guy who says he has a bad shoulder. It's an ugly scene. Watching this, I get why it affected Parker. It is shocking to see the force used on the people who are, again, just dancing. Well, I think it just showed me the violence inherent in the system, you know? And I I don't mean to sound coy when I'm saying that or anything like that. I think it showed me that eventually, if you're not going to comply, they only have one tool to make you comply, and that's force. Parker says the incident made him think more about the meaning of the Constitution. Some of the conclusions he came to are in line with what a lot of civil liberties advocates believe. He thinks there should be a high bar for cops to be able to search someone's property, let alone arrest them. Others are pretty fringe. I'm not a citizen of the United States of America. I'm a citizen of the state of Idaho. I believe I'm a citizen of the state of Idaho. And Idaho is my country. Essentially, he's saying he could be bound by some federal laws if they're constitutional. If it wasn't mentioned in the Constitution, then it should go back to the states per the Tenth Amendment. We're not going to take a deep dive into constitutional law, although prepare yourself for that if you're ever at a patriot movement gathering. But quickly, the Tenth Amendment is the one that says, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. Now, this amendment is critical to the militia and patriot movements. Some, like Parker, have taken it to mean that state law supersedes federal law. Others, known as sovereign citizens, take it to mean they essentially answer to no state or federal law. These interpretations are the exact opposite of how most constitutional scholars see it. In their eyes, it means states can make their own laws as long as they don't conflict with federal law. Anyway, If the dancing arrests were Parker's initiation into deep distrust of government, it was the armed standoff three years later in Nevada that showed him the government didn't have to win. So before we head back to the state Senate race in Idaho, we need to take a short detour to a town called Bunkerville. It's a speck on the map in southern Nevada, but it was the center of the nation's attention in the spring of 2014. This was that ranch standoff that came up at Parker's Senate debate at the top of the episode. It happened because rancher Cliven Bundy hadn't paid his federal grazing fees in decades. So the feds seized his cattle. Militiamen and a smattering of random armed Americans from across the country descended on the dusty patch of sagebrush desert. I'm going to keep the standoff stuff brief here, but Leah Satilli and Ryan Haas do a masterful job explaining its roots and meaning in the podcast Bundyville. It's difficult to overstate what a pivotal moment in the modern militia movement this was. If you remember Pennsylvania volunteer militia leader Christian Yingling from the first episode, he was there too. Cliven Bundy's son Ammon Bundy was there, and we'll have much more on him later. Eric Parker says he was at home in Idaho when he got word of what was happening in Nevada. He wasn't in a militia at the time. A friend of mine sent me a link, um, and this was a local Nevada news outlet and there's this man talking and i read it says it's clark county administrator 
and he's speaking and he says anybody coming to support the Bundys better have funeral plans and a body bag. That didn't sit well with Parker. And at that point, I decided I wasn't going to be intimidated into not exercising my First Amendment. And I threw my body armor and my rifle in the truck. Keep in mind, Parker was leaving his wife and four children at home. He says he knew there was a good chance he could get arrested. But I also know that if I'm intimidated into not exercising my First Amendment and I don't stand up for the Bill of Rights, then my kids aren't going to have it. Parker rose to fame that day when a Reuters photographer took that photo I mentioned. The one where Parker is sprawled on an overpass, pointing his AR-15 rifle through a concrete jersey barrier at federal agents. He became known as the Bundy Ranch Sniper. Were you prepared to, to shoot somebody? I've been asked that question a lot, and I don't know how to answer it. Um, no. No. I don't want to shoot anybody. I wasn't prepared. I've, I've, I've never been prepared to shoot somebody. Um, I've been prepared to defend myself. Um, but at, at the time, you're just hoping it doesn't happen. I mean, that's it. At the time, that's all. That's all. Just hoping, please, God, don't let them shoot these people. Right. Um, looking back on it, If they would have fired on those people in the wash, you're damn right. He also thought he might not make it out of the standoff alive. I remember thinking, I'm never going to get to make my kids pancakes again. Parker didn't take a shot. In the end, the civilians with guns intimidated the feds into leaving without the cattle. It was a critical lesson for Parker. This group of people pointed guns at him and said, leave or we're going to make you leave. And... They ended up leaving, and the protesters got what they wanted. It was a win. I mean, I'll I'll say it. You know, we felt good. Nobody got hurt. We were scared for a second that that was going to happen. After the standoff, Parker joined the Idaho chapter of the 3% militia and was picked as vice president. In patriot movement circles, he became something of a folk hero. But the feds weren't finished with Parker. Four men from the Gem State were indicted Wednesday in connection with the 2014 armed standoff at the Bundy Ranch in Nevada. Two years after the standoff, federal agents arrested him, charged him with multiple felonies. Parker's wife lost her job after his dramatic arrest in their small town. He faced life in prison and went through two mistrials. During that time, he was locked up for a year and a half. For the second time, he faced the real prospect of never making pancakes for his kids again. Rather than go through a third trial, prosecutors made a deal. Parker was offered his freedom in exchange for pleading guilty to a single misdemeanor. He took it. And he walked. I mean, a misdemeanor, I figured I'd get a misdemeanor for kicking over a sign. You know, I, if you're going to go uh, protest and commit civil disobedience, you better be ready to take a misdemeanor. Parker faced off against the government, and he pretty much won. That victory vaulted him to national prominence. Parker founded a new militia from scratch after a scandal sent the then-president of the Idaho 3% to jail. He called it the Real 3%ers of Idaho to distinguish it from the old group. That group is connected to the National 3% Movement. Before we go further, we need to talk about what the 3%ers are. The movement was founded by militia leader Mike Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, who died of cancer in 2016, described himself as a Christian libertarian. He believed in extremely limited government. He said he was against violence, but often used violent language. Among Vanderbilt's philosophical musings, he once wrote, quote, 
If you try to take our firearms, we will kill you. And that was the issue he may have talked about most. Unfettered gun rights as the key to keeping government at bay. Here he is speaking in 2013. Civil war is staring us in the face. To think otherwise is to whistle past the graveyard of our own history. We must, if we wish to avoid armed conflict, get across this message to the collectivists who have declared their appetites for our liberty, our property, and our lives. When democracy turns to tyranny, the armed citizenry still gets to vote. The 3% name comes from the debunked notion that only 3% of American colonists participated in the Revolutionary War. The movement now has loosely affiliated chapters across the country and are arguably the most important wing of the American militia movement. They've also been showing up at some of the most incendiary events across the country. The Idaho chapter went to the armed occupation at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in 2016. Several 3%ers have been arrested in connection with the January 6th Capitol insurrection. And while Vanderbilt denounced racism, his movement has not always heeded that call. Three percenters traveled to Charlottesville in 2017 for a rally that attracted white supremacists chanting racist and anti-Semitic slogans. In 2017, the leader of a Minnesota chapter of the Three Percent bombed a mosque in Minnesota and was later sentenced to more than 50 years in prison. But back to Eric Parker, it's in this swirl of controversy surrounding the Three Percent movement that Parker walks out of the courtroom a free man and a hero not just to militiamen, but local lawmakers, too. Right after his release, Parker was in the gallery of the Idaho House of Representatives, and one of the representatives saw him, and she welcomed him publicly. The lady from District 8. Uh, Mr. Speaker, a point of privilege, please. Uh, you have the floor, Matt. That's Dorothy Moon, a Republican legislator from central Idaho. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I'd like to introduce uh, Mr. Eric Parker, just walked in. Uh, could you please stand up? Eric Parker is one of our five uh, folks that we helped out with our intervention with the Attorney General's office. So I'd like for you to welcome him, and uh, I appreciate everything he's done for the citizens of Idaho and in Nevada. Thank you. Welcome. House will be in order. Now, it's pretty normal for legislators to point out prominent guests during floor sessions. You know, like, this is Sarah so-and-so, and she runs a longtime community business in my district. Then they move on to regular business and start debating the legislation that's usually the focus of local reporters. The Parker shout-out was different. The next day, there was a big story in the Idaho Statesman and other papers around the state about legislators applauding a militia leader. And did you catch that part where Dorothy Moon mentioned the legislators' intervention on Parker's behalf? Moon and several other Idaho elected officials asked the Justice Department to be lenient towards Parker just before they offered him a plea deal. Since then, Parker and his militiamen have become fixtures at the Idaho Capitol. Far-right lawmakers consult him on legislation, even appear in his campaign ads. And Parker has the ear of the state's far-right lieutenant governor, Janice McGeehan, who's running for governor. He's become a kind of unofficial advisor to her. Parker says he started seeing an opening for him in the government he had so distrusted. Then he says he was recruited to run for state senate by the Idaho Republicans. So he announced his candidacy. On the campaign trail, Parker didn't tout his anti-government creds. He started highlighting his government connections. I believe as a member of the majority party, if you were to send me there, I can use that and network with those individuals I already have a relationship with to get the things done that we need done. One of the ways he strengthened those connections was rebranding his militia, 
His group started getting reporters to pay attention to their community service. They loaded potatoes into a militia member's dump truck for a food giveaway in 2020. It was one of several giveaways Parker's group helped with during the pandemic. The Coeur d'Alene Press, a newspaper in North Idaho, even wrote a glowing article about them. The real win for Parker's group was that the reporter referred to them simply as a, quote, non-profit. No mention of, you know, the whole militia thing. Their makeover was working, at least with some people. The militia group had boosted at gun shows, showed up at community events, filled sandbags when floodwaters rose. They even picked up trash and got their name on one of those adopt-a-highway signs. After Boise's Anne Frank Memorial was defaced with Nazi propaganda, the real 3%ers of Idaho raised money to support the memorial. Here's Parker presenting a check to its caretakers. We really do denounce it, and we didn't like what we saw in our community. Um, and we want to publicly make sure that our community knows that we didn't like it, and, and especially those that did it, you know, so... Yeah. Well, this is $1,000 from our members. <laughs> we appreciate what you guys do, and if we can help in any way, um, let us know. Thank you. Yeah, it means a lot to us. Those caretakers did return the money after a local outcry, but the event certainly bolstered the real 3%ers' image. What's clear is that Parker's group is not your shadowy 1990s Michigan militia training in the backwoods, though we'll get to Michigan in another episode. No, Parker and other young patriot movement leaders aren't content to shout at the government from a compound. They don't want to just quietly train in the mountains for a potential confrontation with the government, though they do a lot of that too. They don't even want to be called a militia. First and foremost, we're more than a militia, right? First and foremost, we we focus on a lot of other stuff. Um, You know, militia trains for a firefight, for for, uh, sustained defense and, and ongoing defense. We do a lot more than that. We focus on uh, personal self-reliance. More than a militia. That is exactly what critics are worried about. For some people, Parker's efforts to soften the image of the real 3%ers of Idaho and his own image as a state Senate candidate show the potential for a dangerous mainstreaming of extremism. What we watched is that Eric Parker, who was the Bundy Bridge sniper, the leader of the 3%ers in Idaho, 3% militia, has tried to position himself now as a moderate, everyman kind of Republican. That's one of Parker's biggest critics, fellow Republican Jennifer Ellis. She's an eastern Idaho rancher who co-founded the anti-extremist group Idaho Conservatives. Ellis has been active in GOP politics for decades. For her, Parker entering politics is a symbol of the state's slide into extremism. We saw the GOP get behind him with GOP money. And then the chairman of the Idaho GOP even gave him his personal money to run. Our lieutenant governor and the chairman of the GOP went and did a fundraiser with him. And I guess maybe that was one of the last straws for me to think that maybe we can salvage the GOP in Idaho. She also thinks someone like Parker could do real damage in office. When you're sitting down at tables with rational adults that want to get to the best solution for the most people, or to do the least damage to the, to the most people, you have to give, have an honest give and take at those tables. And you have to be willing to look at somebody else and say, you know, I know that what you want and I want are different, but you don't want to burn everything down. And people like Eric Parker have no interest in that. Burning things down is exactly the image Parker's campaign worked hard to erase in the 2020 state Senate race. 
Here's a campaign ad that features Parker walking through a barn full of cattle with a rancher. The rancher lists off Parker's everyman creds as the camera pans to pastures and crop fields. I'm voting for Eric Parker on November 3rd because he understands the issues that we face as farmers and ranchers in District 26. How do I know this? Because he came to me and asked. And here's an ad about outdoor recreation. From the sawtooths to the Snake River, families like mine enjoy getting out and taking advantage of the beauty and opportunity that our public lands offer. He even put out a Spanish language ad from a local pastor. Hola amigos del Distrito 26. Parker is not shooting a gun in any of his ads, unlike a lot of non-militia Republican candidates around the country. He's not in tactical gear, and he's certainly not talking about overthrowing the government. But all the potato giveaways and checks to human rights organizations, they still don't erase the core of the group's mission. In this video posted to the YouTube channel of the Real 3%ers of Idaho, men shoot on the run, take cover, and shoot again. Parker preaches small teams. That means cellular units of a few armed men that can more easily avoid detection. They're training for guerrilla warfare. Parker's group has a motto on their very fashionable swag. Quote, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. And he'll tell you, those aren't just words. The real three percenters might be many things, but they're training to fight. If the politicians and the government go in a direction they consider unconstitutional, as their motto says, they'll be ready for armed rebellion. The ultimate plan B. Coil formation, coil formation, coil formation, over. Patriot one, set. In a convoy training video, the men are wearing body armor and carrying rifles. They're driving several trucks in a tactical formation basically practicing looking for bad guys. Like the videos you see of Humvees in Iraq and Afghanistan. Will there be a need for such armed defense? Parker talks about it as if it's likely. Here he is during his last state Senate campaign at a rally of the conspiracy-minded John Birch Society. The history of a peaceful transition of power in America is slowly going down the drain. I collect good men who are prepared to defend their neighbors. Parker said that right before Donald Trump lost in 2020. Trump, of course, then made up the big lie that he was cheated, but has never presented evidence of widespread voter fraud. Parker lost the election too, though he got a respectable 43% of the vote in a liberal district. But he wasn't deterred by the setback. Parker's running for office again, for that same state Senate seat. And he might have a much better chance this time around. Redistricting could potentially put a lot more Republicans in his district. I asked to follow up with him to talk about his newest campaign, but he declined. Said he put it to a vote of his militia members and they voted against an interview. As he quipped, it seems as if they've absorbed the message about checking executive power. Anyway, Parker is on the campaign trail, fundraising and making appearances. Yeah, Marcroft! He marched in Haley's Days of the Old West Parade with a big Parker for Idaho sign. Says he handed out 400 pocket constitutions in English and Spanish. Thanks for coming. Have fun, Julie. Happy Fourth. In some ways, he's come a long way from the Bundy Ranch sniper. He hates that moniker, by the way. But he loves the photo. The one of him pointing his rifle at federal agents. He often reposts it as a meme. And why wouldn't he? It's a symbol of his victory. A symbol of his freedom. It's what made him who he is today. It's also a symbol of the potential violence that looms in the background. 
a fight with a government he deems tyrannical. For all the image consciousness, he doesn't downplay that possibility. Are we going to shy away from that battle should it happen? No, we've pledged to defend the state and the Constitution and our culture and our heritage is what we see those documents as and our history. Next time on Extremely American, Borat pranks a militia in Washington. And we head to an island in Washington where that militia is trying to take over community groups and school boards. We have winnable battles in these elections in municipal government, and this is what rattles their cage. Extremely American was created by me, Keith Drusen. Story editing by Morgan Springer. Mixing and sound engineering by James Dawson. Original music by Micah Huang. Additional music from Artlist. Kim Palmero is the editor-in-chief and CEO of Post-Industrial Media. Thanks also to Boise State Public Radio, the exclusive public radio sponsor for this podcast. This podcast is made possible through the Candida Fund. Learn more at kendeda.com. And from the Joyce Foundation, joycefdn.org, with support from the Forbes Funds at ForbesFunds.org. This podcast was produced in partnership with Post-Industrial Media. Post-Industrial covers people, culture, and ideas for post-industrial communities around the world. Visit PostIndustrial.com to learn how you can join the post-industrial community.